Those of you who are staying with us, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles. This is a little bit of a different um, sermon this morning in that we, um, this is a summary. For the last really eight, nine months, we've been in a series working chapter by chapter through uh, the book of 1 Samuel, and so we reached the end of it. Now, if you remember, as we've gone through it, I've reminded you that it's somewhat of an arbitrary break. In the original Hebrew scrolls, the scriptures, First and Second Samuel was not split up. It is somewhat of an artificial break, and they break it with the end of the uh, Saul's dynasty and begins with the, the beginning of, of David's dynasty in, in 2 Samuel. But there really were all one continued uh, scroll in its original. But this gives us a good breaking off place because the next month we're going to be looking at missions, uh, and then we're going to be moving into our Advent series for Christmas. But then in January, we'll begin back again in 2 Samuel. However, it does behoove us to kind of stop and take a moment to really kind of look back, right? Uh, especially over the course of, of nine months, and many of you weren't here uh, for some of the first months of this series. And so for us to kind of step back and take a look at the lay of the land, what have we seen? Let's put it all together um, this morning. And so a great way for us to kind of really approach it and say, hey, you know, how are we going to cover all this material uh, is really to look at a passage that really is kind of a key passage for the entire book. And in fact, um, it's really a bookend prayer. We're going to be looking at Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And if you remember back when we covered it, now granted this was back in January, I noted that the, the Samuel, both first and second, it, which was originally together, is bookended by Hannah's prayer and, um, as she uh, is celebrating God's deliverance and David's prayer at the end of his life, celebrating what God has done in his kingship. And if you were to look and to compare the two prayers, that they're very, very, very similar. And what they do is they form really kind of a summary of the entire book of First and Second Samuel. So it's even though we've already kind of covered the exegesis of First Samuel, we've covered its interpretation, so we're not going to get too bogged down in that. Uh, it does give us kind of a nice place to begin. And of course, uh, for those of you who've looked in the outside chalkboard, that's what this from these verses that we really kind of had as our summary statement for the series. And so we're going to, let's just go ahead and read it in its entirety. Hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk more, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble binds on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down uh, to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy 
from the ash heap to make them sit with the princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are of, of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truthfulness of your word. We thank you for how you reveal yourself and your might and your power, but also in the tenacity of your love and your grace and your mercy towards us through your word. And so, Father, as we look at your word, we pray that you would, through the work of your spirit, give us this illumination that we might see your glory in your revealed word. And in seeing it, it might go and transform our mind. It might go into our hearts changing our very affections, changing our longings, what we call beautiful, what we call good, and ultimately changing in the way that we love. We love you the way we love our neighbor. And so that it moved forth and it would change not just us individually, but we would be a church that is corporately changed by your word, by your love, that we might reflect your glory into the darkness of the world. Our hope is in you. And may our hope be tethered more strongly to you in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I've been blessed to have various mentors throughout the year. And, and a mentor that God had brought into my life is a man that uh, he's, he's certainly towards the end of uh, his career. He's a person that by most, most standards would be uh, in retirement age and yet still very active in ministry. He's a person that part of the reason that was a, uh, wanted him to be a mentor to me is because he's just a person that is known for his deep walk with Christ, his deep disciplines, his uh, a, a ministry that is filled with fruitfulness, a ministry that is kind of cut against the grain in many ways, and a ministry that I found challenges me more and more to trust in the living God. And yet this mentor who has been a believer, not just been a believer longer than I've been alive, but has actually been in ministry and successful ministry, ministry where he's been used by God um, for probably longer than I myself have been alive. And yet I was so, and you, you might find this odd and I'll explain why, but I was so encouraged because this mentor was sharing with me, again, this mentor who's well into retirement age, this mentor who, by all uh, most people's estimation, would be able to just kind of sit on his laurels, someone who already has a very deep and personal walk with Christ, had shared with me that he was going through a season in which God was shaping him, a season in which God was confronting various idols within his own heart and ultimately bringing him into a place where he is more and more secure in the fa- and found his identity in nothing but Christ and confronting some of the areas of, of a place where he was not having Christ as his hope. 
Now, this is a man who has been saved for, like I said, for years. He'd been ministering for years. But yet, what he was testifying to was the tenacity of God's grace in his life that God was not done with this individual. God was not finished breaking this man of his idols. God was not finished exploring the depths of his heart and rooting out sin and bringing in its, putting into its place a love and a righteousness for Jesus Christ. Now, that to me is remarkably encouraging. You might say, well, why? Because, number one, it gives me hope as someone who is now in my fourth decade and has been serving the Lord for a while that, hey, it's, I, it's understandable that I too am in this place. Here, here's someone who has gone way before me that is still struggling with some of the same struggles that I deal with. But it also gives me incredible hope because it reminds me of the tenacity of God's love for his people. It reminds me of the strength of God's love and his commitment ultimately to our salvation. His commitment ultimately to shape us as a people, to reveal his goodness in us. God, as he saves us, is not in any way, shape, or form content to just give us an escape hatch, to just give us a get-out-of-jail-free card, not just to give us a ticket into the amusement ride, which is the kingdom of God, but rather has attached us to him and is committed to nothing less than making us holy. Ultimately, that task will not be realized until we are glorified in the presence of our Savior. But yet we see his commitment to shape us. And I find that deeply, deeply encouraging. I also find that, quite frankly, as a remarkably encouraging theme as we are to look back at 1 Samuel and see how, what are some of the big blocks, some of the big thing, themes that we could kind of put together that is really kind of constantly before us in the book of 1 Samuel. And one of the first very consistent, very kind of loud messages of 1 Samuel to his people is this, that God alone is our rock in our salvation. God alone is our rock in our salvation. Of course, we saw that quite clearly in Hannah's prayer. We saw this quite clearly as she is a person who in her despair cried out to God and saw that God was ultimately sovereign, yes, but ultimately the person in whom she had made her rock, her fortress, her hope, ultimately. And we've addressed that constantly throughout 1 Samuel. We've seen that God has demonstrated himself as as not just some wimpy God, not just some God that is waiting for his people to get things right. He is not someone who is waiting to say, oh boy, I would love to do something with Israel, but I first need to get my people on board. But rather, he is a big sovereign God who is at work redeeming and saving and demonstrating his power over all of creation. We saw this, of course, in Hannah's prayer, where she acknowledges in that prayer that God is the one who controls the economics. He controls who gets raised up and who gets brought down. He controls life and death. 
within there. We see she is testifying to that. And we can say that is that can sometimes be scary when we see, oh, wow, look at all the power God has. But when we know God, when we see God in all of his beauty and all of his glory and all of his goodness that we see that is revealed in Scripture, when we see Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, and we see his glory revealed on the cross, we see he is one who is infinitely not only worthy of all of this power and glory and honor and prestige, but he is someone who is so good beyond our imagination that there is no one else that we would want to have that power. And it is amazing, as we see, he is the one who demonstrates that sovereign power and as he uses it to weave his tapestry of redemption throughout this world and throughout history. We don't say, I want that power. We say, thank God I don't. Thank God he does. Praise be his name. It humbles us and awes us. And that's one of the things that we've seen throughout. In 1 Samuel, we have seen a God who's demonstrated his power. One of the ways we've seen it is through battles. We've seen that whether you're Israelite or the Philistine, God is ultimately the one who is dictating what happens on the battlefield. When he chooses to discipline Israel because of the rebellion of their sin, because of their false worship, because of their idolatry. We saw this in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The armies of Israel and the armies of Philistines had gathered. And, and the Philistines, which was foretold by God that this would happen, just whooped up all over them. Now the people, they thought they could, they could put God in the box. They thought they could manipulate God. They, 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 they could almost kind of turn God into a magic former. So they bring out the Ark of the Covenant. They think they can control him, but what they find out is they still lose. But it's not because God wasn't powerful enough. And in fact, God demonstrated his power upon the Philistines. So we saw in chapter 5 and 6 of 1 Samuel... There's the, the ark, and they bring their ark, and they're trying to celebrate. They believe they've triumphed rather foolishly over the living God. But in the ark, what we see is God demonstrates his utter sovereign power as he crushes the idols and begins to bring about his wrath upon the Philistines to the point where, and there's not a single Israelite soldier, not a single Israelite king anywhere around, but yet God brings them to their knees in his wrath and in his judgment, all on his own. This is the bigness of God, demonstrating his power. He doesn't need the Philistines. He doesn't need Israel to demonstrate his power. He has it all himself. And ultimately, when he wants to demonstrate his power both to Israel and to the Philistines, by defeating the Philistines, he, gives, he sends out his anointed one, David, his anointed one, which is, of course, a foreshadowing of Christ. He sends him out, not in armor, but not in the strength of a giant, but as a boy with a sling to demonstrate that the victory is ultimately the Lord's. And so we see him demonstrate on this big geopolitical scale with wars and battles and economics. But we also see it as 1 Samuel opens up to us in the plight of a woman who is absolutely helpless. And so we see it in the big picture, yes. But we see that God exercises his power to save 
for a woman who you would say would be among the most vulnerable, the most helpless, the most poor in spirit. And you see that this big living God who humbles the enemies of Israel, who brings down kings and he raises up princes, his eye is upon the barren woman who's simply there hurting for worship. He's big God, but he's also more personable, more intimate than we could ever possibly understand. And we see this in the life of the people with Samuel, with David, even with Jonathan, this intimacy, this bigness with God, but this intimacy that is there as well. Is not a, it is God, not the king, not technology, not even heroes that is the source of our hope and strength. The people, and we see the people struggle to get this, right? Even after the great victories, after God had demonstrated his power in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 6, what do we see in 1 Samuel chapter 7? The people are calling out for a king in 1 Samuel chapter 7 and 8. They're calling out, we want a king. We want to be like all the nations. We want to find our security from a human king, from standing armies within that. You see, the people, just like us, struggle. They may see it. They may have seen it demonstrated, but they still, in all the pressures of their culture, they struggle to see and be able to rest in the fact that God would be their hope and their salvation. And we kind of shake our head as we kind of stand back at a 50,000 level and be able to see this kind of unfold in in the matter of of chapters. These are decades that are unfolding in a matter of chapters. But the truth is, there's so much in our civilization that wants to keep us in a place from really truly acknowledging our need and our dependence upon God. We, We can acknowledge that God alone is our rock and our salvation, but so much of the way we conduct our lives seems like what we're really can tied to and convenient on is Walmart. I mean, that's where we get our groceries or Amazon. We are a people, especially in our modern society, that's not really even like the ancients where we are dependent on weather for good crops, right? Charles Taylor, the great philosopher and thinker, Christian thinker, uh, as acknowledges that in the Enlightenment age, one of the big secularizations is we've created this buffer in which we have believed ourselves to be in complete and under control. And so we can look and we can kind of scoff and, and shake our head at, at, at uh, the people of Israel saying, why do you want a king? God just demonstrated it. And we can scoff at Saul and saying, Saul, why are you trying to find a hope and a salvation apart from God? But the truth is, we ourselves can struggle with it just as much. You see, friends, That is something that all of us oftentimes grapple with. We often think that this statement, God alone is our rock and our salvation. We can look at that and we often think, well, that's good for us to understand in the moment of our salvation. Okay, yes, Bo, I have come to this place. I've come to receive Christ. I've acknowledged my need for a Savior and that Jesus Christ is that Savior. I've acknowledged that He on the cross paid for the wrath of my sins. He took the wrath for my sins upon Himself, that He died on the cross, that He rose again from the dead. I am a Christian. I am a believer. I have gotten that statement. And that's awesome. Praise God. That is justification. But in the sanctification process, we find how much 
we often in our lives still struggle to believe that. For most of us, if we're being honest, we're much more like the dad in Mark chapter 9 who brought his son who was possessed by a demon to Jesus, asking, can you? Can you save my son? And when Jesus asked him, what do you mean, can you? And the dad cries, I believe, help my unbelief. Many of us in our lives, as we deal with our pressures and our fears, we can come up here and we can sing the song, our first song, Christ, our only hope in life and death. And we may have been singing that and you may have been reading every word that is on there and saying, yes, I mentally affirm this. But the truth of the matter is, the rest of our life, God is going to be, going to be moving in us, resting in God as our only hope in our life and Salvation is a continued fight for all of us as believers. It is something that we constantly have to have before us. It is, a, it is a constant reminder that we need the gospel. We need to acknowledge that we are so prone to find our hope in other things. And we, when we do so, it becomes like a cancer that spreads throughout pulling us away from God. And it's a struggle that each and every one of us has. And so when we look at these statements, when we sing these songs, Christ, my only hope in life and death, when we see this in Scripture, we don't just allow ourselves to pass over and say, well, I'm a believer. That's why I don't need to hear this anymore. Let's just move on. I've already trusted in Christ. No, we come back to this reality again and again, and we ask ourselves, what are the areas where I'm not trusting God? Where are some of the areas? And they're so subtle. So subtle. Yet so seductive. When we look, I'm actually really finding, looking for hope. I'm looking for security. I've got a treasure that is apart from Christ. My hope is my job, my family, my income, my health. Just like my mentor, each and every one of us, we find that resting in God is our only hope and salvation is a continued fight. It's a fight done through the, through the power of the Spirit. And what we have seen is God has taken the initiative here. He is the one that has taken the initiative. Israel is in a dark place. But yet God in His love is the one who has taken the initiative to continue to mold and to shape His people, both as a nation and individuals within there. And this is what God will be doing for us as a, as a people, as a church, and for us individually. And that's okay. That's okay. We encounter problems so often in our churches. Struggles, what do we do? How do we confront this issue? How do we confront this problem? And it becomes a call all the more to remind us are we going to trust in God? Are we going to look to Him as our hope and to our salvation? And God gives us an incredible help in this process. And this is the second theme that we see that has really been so dominant in 1 Samuel. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a theme unto itself, but yet it's also very related to the first theme because it's a way that God enables us to keep our eyes on to Christ as our hope. And that's this. Worship matters. Worship matters. 
In fact, if we were to look, the first real seven chapters of 1 Samuel is dealing with worship, right? Because what we see is worship is corrupt all the way from the, from the top down. And so right off the bat, we see, and so throughout, um, throughout Samuel, God often teaches these lessons through contrast. So you see Hannah contrasted with Eli, the priest. You see Samuel contrasted with Eli's sons. You see Saul contrasted with Jonathan. And Saul contrasted with David within there, right? But what we saw right off the bat is Israel's priest. We saw that he was spiritually blind. And we talked about spiritual blindness as we looked in there. And his spiritual blindness seemed to come from the corruption of the worship of God. You see, what we found is his sons, what they were doing as people would come and they would worship the living God and they would come to Shiloh, which was the central place of worship in that time. And they would come and they bring their sacrifices for the worship of God. The priests were to wait for, for them to give them a piece of the meat as tied as their Leviticus. And so, but they kind of, they turned it all into almost kind of a mafia rule where they had thugs that would actually come in and they would take the best portions of the meat for themselves. They said, we're not waiting. We're not going to get whatever you guys give us. We're going to take what we want and we're going to take it through violence and through force. Not only that, they used their positions to gratify themselves sexually as well. And so they brought women in, profane the temple of the living God. And so God confronts Eli within that because Eli as a priest sees what his sons are doing and yeah, he kind of gives a little bit of a lip service like, guys, you shouldn't do that, but he doesn't remove them. He doesn't, he doesn't stop them. And in fact, what it says is he actually made himself fat. So even though he was you know, kind of wagging his finger at his sons, he made himself extraordinarily fat from the meat that they were getting in a profane manner. And so what we see is God addresses Eli. He addresses their sons because of the way that they had profaned their worship. Because what they were doing, and we discussed this ultimately, is they were taking the worship of God and making it about them. They're saying this is about what we want worship to be. We want worship to look like within there. Worship is ultimately about us. And now most of us, you're probably not going around, you know, you know, with some thugs, you know, hustling some granny here when you come to church. Uh, and hopefully none of the other stuff as well. It is so easy for us to come in and make worship about us. And so we see God, he plays on the word kabod, this, this Hebrew word kabod. And in the Hebrew, that word can mean, it can have kind of an elastic of meaning, but it's often translated glory. But it can also mean heavy or honor within there. And he's saying, what he's telling um, Eli is, you have failed to honor me. You have failed to glory me. You have failed to make me that which is heaviest, that which is the weightiest. Because that's what worship is a response to God's grace and saying, God, you are that which is the heaviest. You are that which is the most worthy, the most substantive of it. And so he rebukes Eli through a prophet. And he says, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And you honor, kavod. So in other words, you haven't honored me. You've made me light, but you have honored, kavod, 
your sons above me. Why? Because you have fattened yourself. In other words, you have made yourself heavy. You haven't made me heavy in your worship. You've made yourself heavy. You made yourself fattening yourself with your, the choicest parts of every offering of the people of Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go out and in before me. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who have honored kavod, me, those who have made me heavy, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Do you see that play on the word there? Heavy versus light within that. And so what we see, worship matters. Now, oftentimes when we look at worship, when we discuss what is worship about, we immediately want to go into these silly worship style fights because we want to think well is god just up there is he just does he just really not like the drums does god just really not like the electric piano guess what bob god loves the drums so good good news for you all right that's awesome but that is such a a distraction for what is really truly important in worship god the style isn't as important as much as is it putting our focus on God and what he has done. Why does worship matter? Well, it matters for a few reasons. Number one, it matters because God has made us and God ultimately has the right to demand our worship. We are made by him and for him. When we worship God, when we make God that which is heaviest, we are ultimately moving with the grain of our existence. We think happiness comes from making ourselves great and big, but ultimately that is rebellion, and the, the wages of rebellion is death. It's never going to lead to life within there, and it's one of those great paradoxes of life. The more we find our identity and our hope and our worship and our love for God, and less in ourselves, the more we actually find ourselves, the more we actually find the joy, the more we actually find freedom. It's not found in declaring ourselves God or making everything about us. And ultimately, worship matters because God in his great and his goodness and his glory is, is worthy of all worship. Joseph read from, first, uh, from Revelation chapter 5 when we saw the splendor of God. It commanded all the cosmos to bow before him. In a very imperfect manner, the only thing I can say is you know when I first went to the to the Rocky Mountains and and being a you know an Oklahoma boy where you know a hill this big is a kind of a mountain you know that just looking at those mountains all I could do is say wow and that was the proper response and it's to come back and say wow you got to look at those mountains when we see the grandeur and the glory of God that is that that is our proper response wow Look at how glorious he is. Look how merciful he is. Look how good he is. But ultimately, as well, worship matters because we see that we are shaped by what we worship. And this is an important truth for us to understand. Worship is an important way that God keeps us focused on him as our source of hope and life and salvation. You see, this is how it all interweaves. This is an important way that God teaches us the very first point, that he constantly reminds us of where our hope and our salvation lies. It's through worship. 
And that's why the gathering of corporate worship is ultimately so important. Not only in our gathering of corporate worship, but even in our individual, every action that we do of worship, that we keep it focused on God. That Now, certainly in worship, there is place for lament. There is place for us to, to take our sorrows to Him. So it's not a complete absence of person of, of who we are, but it is always taking all of our hopes, desires, dreams, hurts, pains, and giving it to God. And declaring He is our hope and our salvation. When our worship gets off of that, inevitably, in our lives, God will not be our hope and our salvation, our rock and our fortress. Worship matters. Thirdly, what we saw quite clearly is obedience matters. Obedience matters. We saw this not only to the the nation of Israel, but Saul, who is in many ways a microchasm of the nation, we saw this with him in his lack of obedience. He wanted to, again, make worship, and I should have noted this, we see this, we saw this, of course, with Eli and his sons, but notice what we constantly saw with Saul as well. He, wanted, he was obviously often worshiping God he was, by doing religious activities, but his worship was all about him. And so God was never his ultimate hope and his ultimate salvation. His worship got askewed. Or actually, it was never on the right place to begin with. And what we saw within that, what worship does is it keeps us seeing our life as part of God's story. Corrupt worship that becomes about us, is, it becomes like what we often said Saul was doing. He had his story, his agenda that he was trying to bring God into. And that led ultimately to his disobedience. And so God called him to do to obey him. Now, many of the things that we looked at what Saul did, he seemed like David certainly did worse. Other people certainly seemed like they did worse. Now, not later on. Later on, he became genocidal. Killing the own priest of God. But in his obedience, again, he tried to make it about him, ultimately not about making God. And so what we see... Then in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel confronts Saul with this statement. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination, and presumption is the iniquity of idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, and he has rejected you from being king. Now, this isn't saying, well, worship matters, but, work, but obedience is more, is more important. This is saying they work hand in hand. They go together. Proper worship will feed proper obedience, and proper obedience will feed proper worship. Worship. 
When we disobey, once again, it's not because God has set up life into be some sort of strange Japanese game show where He says, let's see if they do this right. But rather, our disobedience is our rebellion against the most glorious, good, and beautiful God. And the fruit of that disobedience is chaos. It's death. And as we've said many times, and I don't want to uh, beat this point up, we hit it a lot last week, is the sin always affects the community. When we disobey, it brings God's judgment. Of course it does, because our disobedience always makes a mess of our lives. It makes a mess of God's good world and a mess of God's good world. And God's holiness demands judgment. But here's the thing, and here's the final point. As we've looked at this, what we have seen is no one really has fully disobeyed in 1 Samuel. We've often seen contrast, Hannah and Eli, Samuel and Samuel's sons, Saul and David. But it isn't a point and say, well, hey, Hannah was perfect, try to emulate Hannah. David was perfect, trying to emulate David. Even Samuel, we saw he kind of let his sons run amok. But what is the difference? Where's the difference that we see? The difference is this. Grace. Grace matters. And this is one of the most stark differences and contrasts that we've seen between these people. Hannah, Samuel, David didn't move into a place with God in which they felt like they could manipulate him, but understood themselves as nobodies, understood themselves as people who were unworthy, but ultimately had a confidence in the relationship and depends upon God because of who God is and his mercy and his grace and his love. When we see those who were ultimately judged most harshly in 1 Samuel, the way they responded when confronted with their sin, we see a stark contrast. Uh, Eli's sons, for example, when they were confronted by Eli, they just ignored him. They seemed to not care. Maybe they didn't even believe in God. We don't know. Maybe they just said, quiet, old man, we're just going to keep doing it. So theirs was a complete sense of flippance towards their sin. They weren't moving to God in grace and mercy saying, man, we've got problems. Man, I know I need to go and wait, watchers, but man, I, I see that stake and I want it. No, they're flippant towards their sin. They don't care. They're just going to do whatever they want to do. But even Eli, and when you read his, his, his response to the prophecies of God, it can almost sound kind of pious. It's almost like, well, God's will be done. But there's even in that a sense of flippancy towards the judgment rather than throwing himself upon the mercy of grace, upon a God who is merciful and just, who, as a priest, knowing the story of Israel in the desert with the golden calf, should have known to throw himself upon the grace of God, but he still hid behind a piety to just say, well, what's going to happen is going to happen. And Saul, of course, Never really owned up to his sin. Oh, he, he cried things out, but you could tell it was very easy from the text to see he was just virtue signaling. He was just 
the person trying to say, hey, look, what do I need to say to get you to stop yelling at me? You know, I do something wrong to my wife, and I'm a real jerk to her, because that would never happen, right? And I come up to her, and I can tell she's mad at me, and I'm hungry, and because I'm a jerk, I'm like, hey, can you make me a sandwich? And I just say, I know you're mad at me, so what do you want me to say so that you're no longer mad at me and you'll make me a sandwich? I wouldn't want to eat that sandwich, folks. <laughs> she gets mad when I see Susan Hillstrom. She's never done anything to my food, okay? So, um, <laughs> but that's just virtue signaling. That's not going to God in grace. David, however, we saw, has done some pretty bad things. And guess what, folks? When we move into 2 Samuel, it's going to get a lot worse. A whole lot worse. But yet he moves towards the heart of God from the posture of mercy. Not entitlement, not thinking that he's done some sort of magic jig or magic ritual that has earned his place, but rather because of mercy because of grace. He acknowledges when he sins, and we see this in his very own confessions in the Psalms. Against you and you alone have I sinned. But there's two things that's so important that we see for us to be able to receive and live and understand that grace matters. Number one, our desperate need for grace. But number two, a confidence in God's gracious willingness to give it to us. So in other words, it's not a confidence that we can make God feel sorry enough for us by how sorry we are, but rather a confidence that God will give grace because He is just that gracious. It's a need, a brokenness. I need God. I need grace. And my confidence isn't that I'm going to be able to manipulate God, but because of who God is in the grandeur of his wonder that was proven definitively through Jesus Christ on the cross. That his grace is sufficient for me. It is there for me. Now, this reality that grace matters, it doesn't nullify the other realities of that worship matters or obedience matters. It's, well, if I got grace, what does it matter about worship or obedience? Again, grace isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. It is a, it is a redemption. It is God saying, you are mine. And a freedom from the shame that keeps us from God, but rather enables us to be in the presence of God, that he will shape us, shape our longings, shape our worship, shape our obedience in our very lives within there. It, my friend, what we see in the reality that grace matters is an invitation to life. I'm not saying it's going to be the easy life. There's suffering involved. There's hardships involved. There's brokenness involved, but it is true life. A life in which you are loved more completely than you could ever possibly imagine. A love that satisfies all the deep longings of your hearts. A love that when we understand and we grasp it through the power of the Spirit, we are able to say, why would I want another hope? Why would I want another salvation? Why would I want another rock or fortress? 
You can't beat the glorious goodness of this God. That brings us back to where we began. How is God shaping you so that he and he alone is your, is his, are, are your hope? He and he alone is your salvation, your rock and your refuge. How is he confronting your sin? How is he calling you to transform your life through worship? Take a moment. Every eye closed, every head bowed. Ask the Father. Maybe... Maybe this is the first time for you. Maybe you're not a believer. And this is the first time for you to say, God, I want to believe. I need your spirit to enable me to believe. Maybe you are a believer and you see how God is shaping you and forming you. How is the Spirit at work in you? Ask God to give you eyes to see and a heart that is changed by His Spirit that you might love Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How is He calling you to rest in His grace this morning? To trust in Him and Him alone and in His love. Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness. Our hope is in you. But what a glorious hope. What a sure hope that is. Fill us all in this place with that hope this morning in Jesus' name.